0: Welcome back to Hearing Her Voice. As of September 1st, 2021, a new law, Senate Bill 8, aka Heartbeat Bill, came into effect in Texas. People who become pregnant would be only allowed to get an abortion within six weeks. Which is ridiculous, since on average, women don't even realize they're pregnant until after four weeks. And if this pandemic has showed us anything is that getting healthcare appointments within a week is extremely difficult, especially for those who are in underserved communities. Having less than two weeks to make such an important decision and to get a procedure done is BS. Sorry for my language, but that is not enough time at all. That is not even the worst part. To our disgust, there are no exceptions for those who were impregnated via incest or rape. Let me repeat that. There are no exceptions for those who were impregnated via incest or rape. Who the hell does this to someone that is already traumatic enough and they want this person to process her trauma and make a decision of getting an abortion or not in less than two weeks? How dare you? In response to this bill, we wanted to raise awareness on how the bill greatly affects not only the rights of people who become pregnant, but also their health. We wanted to openly discuss abortion to advocate for women's dignity, pro-choice. We're honored to have two wonderful OBGYN physicians, Dr. Selina Sandoval from UCSD and Dr. Kyle Bukowski from Planned Parenthood to talk more about reproductive justice and what we can do to help those affected by this law. Before we dive into our episode, please note that this issue is still ongoing. The situation may have changed from the date of this recording, which is September 9th. As of today, the Department of Justice has sued the state of Texas, led by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Fingers crossed, and without further ado, we hope you enjoy this emergency episode.
1: it would be helpful to give everybody some context about how abortion is regulated in the United States to really understand why this law is such a big issue. So Roe v. Wade, 1973, is a Supreme Court decision that essentially said that abortion is legal up until viability uh, in the United States and because it was a private decision between a person and their doctor. And since 1973, we have seen over and over again, states add additional regulations to abortion care in the name of, and I will put in quotes, you can't see me, maternal health, even though none of the regulations that have ever been imposed by any restrictive state has ever been shown to improve maternal health uh, or decrease maternal mortality or morbidity. And in fact, most most of these laws actually make abortion more dangerous because it's stigmatized, it gets delayed, uh, or patients are just unable to get an abortion, and have to continue a pregnancy to term. So that's kind of what dictates the legality of abortion in the United States is Roe v. Wade. And even though Roe v. Wade has been the law of the land for you know 50 years, it is not actually accessible for many people living in restrictive states, particularly in the South and in the Midwest, um, because of all the barriers that have been created. So it's a law in name, but it's not actually a reality for people, particularly low income people or people who have uh, decreased resources. So up until September 1st, abortion was still legal in all 50 states and no law like this had ever been passed uh, because of Roe v. Wade as being constitutional law. Um, This law is very special and I will, I don't know, selena if you wanna explain how this law works and why it has been able to go into effect compared to every other that we've seen similar to this in the past.
2: Yeah, so I'm definitely not a legal expert, but my understanding is this is separate because it is like a civil law. And so what it does is it allows anyone um, in Texas or anywhere to do a civil lawsuit against someone pursuing an abortion um, after six weeks. And I think something that's important to point out is when we say after six weeks, we mean six weeks of from your last menstrual period. And so recently, Governor Abbott made a statement saying that patients would have six weeks to obtain an abortion, but patients would not know they were pregnant until approximately four weeks. So really, they do not have six weeks to detain an abortion. And because we know that these patients are already at, facing disproportionately difficult access to care, that there are already delays that they're facing. So two weeks is not enough time in order to access safe abortion. Um, but the reason this is different to my understanding is that this is this allows like a civil lawsuit as opposed to like a national law or a state law. And so it would leave it to the individual citizens to take a civil lawsuit against the um, patient or anybody assisting them.
1: I guess that's uh, what, oh, go for it. (laughs) And as disgusting as this sounds, it's very smart what the anti-choice legislators have done, right? Because, Because Roe v. Wade is Supreme Court precedent Any time the law that is unconstitutional, according to Roe v. Wade, comes into, you know, gets passed by a state legislature, we can sue the state because the state is usually the one that's enforcing the law. Right. The secretary of state or the executive branch of that state is is, um, enforcing that law. But because they now have deputized any ordinary citizen and specifically said the state cannot bring a lawsuit against anybody aiding and abetting a person getting an abortion in Texas, there are now you know, millions of potential plaintiffs in these lawsuits. So there's no way for you know Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, the Center for Reproductive Freedom, Whole Women's Health to enjoin this law and prevent it from going into effect because you can't identify who the plaintiff will be who may potentially sue somebody else in Texas. So legally, it's very smart. And it has set us up uh, to be a very challenging case to fight because it doesn't follow the normal rules that we've always used to identify laws that are unconstitutional based on Supreme Court precedent.
3: Yeah, I agree 100%. Like this law is very, as you said, it's like crafted by, a, by someone really cunning to really bypass the system because what the Supreme Court has said is that we want we cannot intervene because it's a civil case. It's not overturning Roe v. Wade. That's why it's all this controversy that's brewing. Like on a macro level, other states who want to restrict more abortions will look at this law and use use it as a precedent that, oh, this is a way to bypass the Roe v. Wade or any other things that they would like to pursue for their own values. In a micro level, as you said, this allows people to Uh, deputize the citizens not only the physicians who perform abortions but only the staff members but also people who help abortions for example if an uber driver takes a person to Planned Parenthood who does abortions after six weeks then they will both get penalized all the staff members so this is really um as you said very hard stance not only for the providers but also for the organizations who's just helping these uh people get safe abortions
2: um i think the other thing that this really um, does is it opens the gate to just bury these clinics and these providers in lawsuits that they can't possibly keep up with financially or from a time standpoint
3: as well i guess that just brings out to our um, wonderful guests again dr kowski like um, you're a part of the Planned Parenthood, which is uh, really big on uh, providing safe abortions. Uh, have you heard anything from your colleagues in Texas or any other uh, places about this issue?
1: It's heartbreaking. This past week has been has been heartbreaking, um, and also not surprising. You know, it was very clear what the ramifications of Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett getting nominated to the Supreme Court meant for reproductive. Rights and health in this country. None of us were uh, even a little bit confused on what those Supreme Court nominations meant and uh, the hit that we took in their com- confirmation. You know, even before this law went into effect, there's another case coming out of Mississippi with a 15 week ban that the Supreme Court has accepted to hear. There is absolutely no reason for the Supreme Court to hear that case. Because it is clearly unconstitutional against Roe v. Wade, unless they actually think there's some merit in restricting abortion before viability, which is what the current law of the land is. So we were already on this road for years. Um, And just to remind your listeners, there are 26 states, more than half the states in the United States, are ready to pass extremely restrictive abortion bans if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Many, like nine of which, already have trigger bans that the moment Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion becomes immediately illegal in those states. So this is serious. Um, I'm gonna pause for a second. The other part of your question was...
3: Oh, um, like your
1: colleagues in oh, Planned, Planned Parenthood. And- yeah. So we know this has been coming, and you know, for my colleagues in Texas, it is not only heartbreaking, um, it is their livelihood, right? They are employed by Planned Parenthood, by Whole Women's Health, by independent abortion providers in Texas to provide medical care. They have student loans. They have families. If any other medical professional was impacted the way that this law is impacting abortion providers in Texas, it would be unconscionable, right? But because it's abortion, it gets a moral pass. And um, so they have Incredible financial burden by this. Those affiliates have an incredible financial burden. If you look at the laws that led to the whole Women's Health Supreme Court case in 2016, um, it is very hard to reopen clinics after they are shut down. The financial impact of this is huge because once they close, you lose staff, you lose providers then you have to get all those providers back. You have to get all that staff back. You have to retrain them. You have to go through the whole regulatory process of getting these clinics back up and running. That is a huge cost. So it is, it is, it is more than just directly like you can't provide abortion anymore, but it is the impact of this law ongoing financially for these affiliates uh, and providers to be able to reopen their doors. I mean, even just during the COVID-19 pandemic, whenever, uh, states such as Texas decided that abortion was not essential health care and therefore kind of effectively stopped abortion in those states for weeks. Even those days when clinics were open, they were closed, they're open, they were closed, a huge financial burden um, on those affiliates. And so it's there's a lot of heartbreak right now and there's a lot of work to do. But just the fact that this law is able to go into effect is you know, horrifying uh, and there will be long lasting impacts just from the week of it being in effect thus far.
0: I think that the most important thing is that it's not enough time. Um, like, uh, Selena has said, it's only two weeks. And even then these clinics are opening and closing. And because of the pandemic, there's not a lot of um, availability. And then a lot of times they're asking you to um, get a negative test. And then sometimes um, there's a delay. So there's a lot of resources out there, but you can't be able to utilize in such a short amount of time and then now you might even face legalities because of this so that also puts a lot of stress on a lot of people because it's this affects everyone
1: it it does affect everyone but i wonder if selena can comment on who gets affected most by these kinds of laws
2: Yeah. So first I want to say also that we say two weeks, but that's two weeks for someone with a regular menstrual cycle. So that's not keeping into account all all the patients with like complex medical conditions or other conditions that affect their bleeding patterns and their menstrual cycle. So for those patients, um, if their periods aren't regular, so they may not actually have two weeks by the time they even discover they're pregnant, they might be past that six week mark. Um, But we know that these laws disproportionately affect women of um, low socioeconomic um, status or women of color. And we already know that patients of color, for example, already have health disparities that they're facing. So black women in Texas, for example, they account for 11% of live births but they also account for 31% of maternal deaths. And so when we talk about how these are threats to maternal health, we're not just talking about unsafe abortion either, or patients who are finding other ways to access abortion. We're talking about these patients having significant increase of a poor health outcome when they're forced to continue their pregnancies. And so we know that these patients um, that already have difficult access to care, and now they're having to drive. For example, if they're going out of state, their increase that like the average increase that they're driving, it's going from something from like 10 to 15 miles to their nearest abortion clinic to almost 250 miles. And so we know that patients who, you know, already are having trouble accessing care, they might have financial um, difficulties. They have childcare. They're paying for gas to travel. They're having to take work off. Um, These are patients that are like dependent on their work. They might not have jobs that allow them to have sick pay um, or paid family leave or whatever they're going to utilize in order to take time off. They might not have um, a support system that gives them childcare. So how are they going to travel for a day and a half and then go to get a procedure somewhere else, depending on how far along they are. That could also be a two day venture before they're able to return.
3: I believe like just the fact that they're asking people to get all these hurdles and everything, as you said, even though they're in a very low socioeconomic status, which are very impacted, mostly for people who are seeking abortions because they might have a child they're already caring, or, or the financial constraints or personal constraints that um, conflicts with their work schedules. I believe like in my limited uh, legal knowledge, this kind of contradicts with 1992, I believe, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which states about, how um, abortions should not create undue burden for these patients and these are creating all these hardships and why does the court i just can't like uh agree on like how the court allowed this to happen even though there is a precedent that says
1: they should not create these burdens for these patients yeah so you know texas everything's bigger in texas and everything is wronger in texas so it has only been five years since Texas was at the Supreme Court getting sued by Whole Women's Health for the numerous amount of trap laws that they had implemented in the early 2010s, right? So trap laws are targeted regulation of abortion providers. These are laws that uh, specifically target abortion provision and make it so difficult to meet the legal standard of the law that essentially clinics have to close, right? That their doors have to be a certain width that's wider than the normal door. That's necessary. That certain medications have to be kept in stock, even though they're never going to be used. That they have to qualify as an ambulatory surgery center, even though any other uh, similarly risky medical uh, procedure done in the office doesn't require that. Uh, and they lost—they lost that Supreme Court case, 2016, right? And within five years, they have essentially outlawed abortion. Right? This is how aggressive uh, these legislators are in limiting access to reproductive health care. And the other thing that I'll say that's particularly important about Texas, and to Selena's point, that state legislature meets once every two years and is a non paid state legislature, which means you need to be able to have another job or source of income to be a state legislator, right? And that is a perfect example of how white supremacy and privilege is going to play into these legislators being predominantly white of means. And let's be honest, old white men who are able to run for state legislature and make these laws and leave out people who these laws actually affect, right? Low income people, people of color, people who don't have the ability to run for state office and then hold that position and have another job, right? To make their income. So this is a clear example of how systemic inequity plays into how these laws get passed. And then what did Texas do right after they passed that law? They passed another law that ex- one of the most restrictive laws in voting rights ever. Right. Cause mm-hmm. you may have seen that Texas picked up a couple congressional seats because of influx of, uh, you know, California. new residents of Texas. Yeah. Guess what? Most of those new residents are not Republican. Right. But the way that they're going to redistrict that state with the 2020 census data, they may negate that influx of democratic voters. Um, so there's there's so much at play. I mean, this is a microcosm of all the things we're seeing across the country um, that all play a part in, in how these laws get passed. Because I think all of us are so shocked that it happens uh, if you're not paying attention. I mean, thank you for all the background, like giving what makes
3: or what constitutes of Texas state legislators, like thinking that deeply in like how they are, It's like systematically programmed to be represented disproportionately by um, white people who are more privileged than um, people with color. And I think we can just, after hearing all this discussion, like my blood is kind of boiling, like, what can we do? Like, what can we do right now? Like, we're unfortunately or fortunately in California. We're not in Texas. What can we do here? to help people in Texas.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things that we can all do. Um, it's very encouraging to see how outraged the nation is, but keeping that passion going and keeping this in like social media and the rest of the media, podcasts, things like this, um, but keeping the conversation open and decreasing the stigma. So. Laws like this get passed because people don't want to talk about abortion unless they're talking negatively about abortion, right? And so people sharing, if they feel comfortable sharing their abortion stories, we know that everybody literally knows someone who's had an abortion. One in four women have an abortion in their lifetime. Two thirds of women who have an abortion have a child at home. So we have all this stigmatized conversation around abortion, but keeping keeping our communities talking about it. Other things to do are if you have the funds, um, supporting Texas abortion funds or websites, um, reaching out to providers and different clinics, and providing funds if you have the means to do that as well.
1: Yeah, abortion funds are huge. So abortion funds are private organizations that help people access abortion with basically financial assistance, and there's at least ten of them in Texas that you can support, as well as the surrounding states and small donations make a huge difference in people being able to get past the barriers that have now been imposed um, in Texas. Uh, we do live in California, but there's also a recall election uh, that is happening. So I please uh, encourage all of your listeners to vote. Make sure that your ballot is in before September 14th or that you vote on the 14th uh, to make your voice heard because there could be similar laws passed in California. Um, you, We have a congressional Senate seat that is potentially up um, Feinstein resigned. So there's there's a lot of important things that the governor manages that affect reproductive rights, even in this um, even in this state. Uh, Calling your representative, especially for outside California, the Women's Health Protection Act uh, is going to be coming up in the House, which would codify abortion care, uh, you know, as a legal status, federal legal um, protection, and not just on this tenuous line of being a Supreme Court decision, which would be. Uh, really, really important. Um, And again, I completely support what Selena is saying. Abortion is safe, it is common, and it is necessary. Um, Everybody has sex. And some of those times you have sex, it results in a pregnancy. And a lot of people aren't planning pregnancy when they have sex. And so um, it's just a normal part of being human and being sexually active people. Um, If you're having sex, that results in a pregnancy. So we need to normalize abortion. The normal part of pregnancy, uh, because it is, and so the more that you can talk about that and normalize that experience, and know that I promise there is somebody, if not multiple people, in your life who have had an abortion, and they're alive to be your friend or family member because they had a safe, legal abortion, uh, is really, really important.
0: I think it's very important to um, normalize it because, um, from my background, my whole family is um, unfortunately all for this new. Um, law because they say, oh, you know, it's, it's in our religion, you know, um, Catholics are not supposed to believe in abortion. That's wrong. You know Um, they're all in support of it, but um, I don't think, you know, it's, it's even right. What if the person got raped, you know, sometimes it's even hard to come out and say, Hey, this happened to me. Let me go in and get checked to see if I'm even pregnant. You know, there's a lot of like mental um, health, going on there that people are even in shock and shock, I'm sorry, and um, normalizing it. And even if you um, didn't get raped, it's like everyone does it. And it's, it's something that happens. Nobody plans it, of course, if not, you know, decisions wouldn't be made. But um, I mean, I feel that it's about pro-choice. It's not about that you. you sh- everyone should get an abortion. It's about everyone making the decision for themselves.
1: Celine and I are both OBGYNs. We we deliver babies. We love delivering babies. We love providing abortions. We love taking care of people who can get pregnant at whatever stage or plan that they have in their pregnancy. And we also know the horrific situations that can require um, a very hard decision between a patient and their family and no one can ever understand and walk in their shoes and know what they need to do to be the best parent or person that they want to be and sure as hell not legislators right to to legislate that it should be a private decision between that person and their provider for all the reasons i was raised in a very anti-choice home in the south uh so I I totally understand, Scarlett, what it's like to have family members who uh think that this law is, you know, good. And the other thing that I think is important to remember is we are not a minority, right? Over two-thirds of Americans believe that abortion should be legal and accessible in the United States. Right. So even though we're seeing these laws passed, those legislators do not represent majority opinion. And we need to keep reminding people that and to not be afraid to be vocal because they're afraid that they're actually a minority when they say that abortion should be legal, safe, and accessible. Cause that's not true. They're actually a majority. And it's important that people understand that.
0: I think um, there's also uh, this big issue where a lot of people are, um, they don't know much about law and then they shy away from it. Cause then they're like, Oh, I, I don't even understand. I just know that what I can't and can't do. Um, so I think um, educating people is also um, another thing that, we should be able to do so thank you so much for that intro um, so that we can be able to um, further educate and then be able to normalize everything um, so that we can stand as one and like you said yeah we're not a minority we're a majority and our voice needs to be heard over the ones who are making these poor decisions because obviously they've never been in those shoes and so I don't think, um, they're even thinking about others except for themselves.
3: Yeah. I would a hundred percent like all these things just based on the fact that we are, um, we can represent an idea and then that does not have to be, um, something, as you said, as Dr. Bukowski said, you can start from here, like where you live, wherever our listeners are, it's just. Uh, you need to identify what's happening in your home ground because you can um, have more power in like changing or calling legislators to make your voices heard. And then that power will eventually transcend to people in Texas or in the US in general to show what you care about. And as, as we all say, we are the majority. So there's nothing to be afraid of saying like, oh, um, my, I'm just the minority. It's like, we represent that everybody... And including the woman who's giving birth, um, including a person who's giving birth, is should be having that choice to whether they are going to have an abortion or not. That's like that's the basic thing of reproductive justice, like having the woman giving the choice to get an abortion uh, when they need it.
0: And then, just for um, mm-hmm. educational purposes, can you give us examples of when? Um, it is necessary to have an abortion or at least what Texas says that it's okay to have an abortion if you have this diagnosis.
2: Um, I can talk on this. So I did most of my medical training in the Midwest. Um, I did my medical school and my residency training out there. And so um, similar to Texas, there are some state laws that we had to follow um, specifically when it came to like threat to maternal health. Um, So if you ask any OBGYN, they would say that pregnancy in itself is a threat to maternal health, like case in point, end of the discussion. However, when it comes to legislation, trying to prove that a pregnancy is a threat to maternal health is actually much more difficult than you would expect. So I've seen patients who, for example, were in kidney failure because of their pregnancy and it took Two weeks versus of consulting services and p- other people getting involved that weren't OBGYNs, that weren't the patient, including ethics committees, um, trying to make sure we were staying within the state laws, getting hospital approval, things like that. And these patients become increasingly, increasingly sick and are like septic. Um, they're literally having end organ failure. Um, and then we can do their procedure finally, and they turn around right away. So it sounds convenient and easy to say a threat to maternal health. But that's a very hard line to prove medically, depending on who's making that decision. And when legislators are making the decision, like they don't have the medical education to understand that, again, pregnancy itself is the threat. And so that's where the line should be drawn. Um, So it's I think it's convenient when people say things like that but they don't actually understand how complicated those cases get and how um big of an impact those have on um whoever's pregnant, their personal health, their family, their finances,
1: things like that. And they're they're not rare. You know, every single OBGYN has seen one of these situations in their training in their practice where It is absolutely necessary that somebody should not be pregnant or else they will die um, at some point in their pregnancy. And if that's after, you know, viability, they get delivered at 24, 25, 26 weeks. Right. Even though we know that that, um, you know, newborn is going to have a very hard road with prematurity. And if it happens to be before viability, they're going to get access to abortion because we know that this mom will die uh, if they're not taken care of. And so these are not rare things um they are what we train for what we train to take care of um and so they're not unicorns they're much more common than i think people realize and the reason why people don't know that much about them is because it's a private decision between a patient and their doctor and their family to determine what's safest for them uh the way it should be uh
3: 100 i mean just thank you both for, like giving us all these uh precious uh special like ob opinions because that's what should be incorporated in making these laws because that's like who knows the maternal health and the newborn's health or their interests at best in mind. Um, I'm
2: even curious. Did they,
0: they even <laughs> ask an expert on the situation, you know?
1: No. A <laughs> panel? No. I. They're, that would require them to actually consider the people they are legislating as like full autonomous humans, which they do not.
2: And I think the other thing that's important that, you know, was the reason we're here today is the options that patients are given and their health outcomes are completely determinant on where they live. So I think like in a quick example is if um, a patient's water breaks before viability, the standard of care is to offer that patient an abortion. So in most places in California, they're at least transferred out or offered an abortion, you would hope. In other places in the United States, those patients are kept in the hospital and they are not offered an abortion until they're literally septic and actively dying
0: wow wow that's very heartbreaking and it kind of how is that okay it's not that's basically torturing someone at least in my opinion
1: it's making somebody a human incubator that has no autonomy over their own body Um, We also know that abortion restrictions don't change the incidence, right? How common abortion is. Abortion will always be necessary and it will always happen as long as there are people to get pregnant. Restricting abortion only stigmatizes it, drives it underground, and makes it more unsafe. If you look at maternal mortality rates, pre-Roe v. Wade versus after, there's a huge drop in maternal mortality When abortion became legal, because it could be done in the open and there were standards and safety, and it was done um, in a completely humanistic manner, and we saw maternal mortality drop precipitously in the 1970s. Um, And then we see the exact inverse when it gets restricted; we see more women die.
0: I think the important part is that this was implemented to, you know, practice safe abortion because people. We're not doing it safely when um, when they don't have access. Um, I know a lot of my friends um, who would come over here because in Mexico they wouldn't be able to. And you know, thankfully they're alive right now and they're okay. So um, yeah,
1: oh, that's that's changing in Mexico. That's what I heard. The yeah, just legalized yeah. throughout the country. So now people are going to go in the other direction. They're going to Juarez instead of El Paso. <laughs> To get their abortions, uh, never thought you'd see that.
3: Right, yeah, it's a huge Catholic country, and then when I heard the news, I'm like, "Why is the U.S. going backwards?" Um, I just want to probably um, maybe end the podcast with this one question. Um, from like, I would I would like to hear from both both of you guys, like what women in Texas do right now if they're before six weeks, and then if they're after six weeks. Where can they they ask for help because um from our podcast like fourteen percent of our listeners is from Texas, so we're like Arlington Austin, Dallas, so just want to share this information out to them, so in the case they know somebody, they can be of a resource
2: yeah, so patients who are before six weeks um of course, that's by their last menstrual period, um, can reach out to a local safe abortion clinic. So Whole Women's Health, Planned Parenthood. Um, I'm sure your listeners are aware of things, something called a crisis pregnancy center, which are kind of fake clinics that trap women, um, women or people who can get pregnant into coming into their clinic and trying to talk them out of that. So um, finding a well-established abortion clinic somewhere safe to go. Um, another option is um, getting access to medication abortion. So even if you aren't pregnant at the time, you can access, medication abortion. There's a website called Plan C, which can provide um, mifepristone and mesoprostol, which are the medications that induce medication abortion. And so I could say personally, if I was a patient in Texas, not interested in being pregnant, I would probably access those pills before I knew I was pregnant so that I had them available if medication abortion was something that I thought was um, acceptable for myself. I'll let Dr. Bukowski answer the second question.
1: So, um, all of the providers in Texas are basically running like crisis hotlines now. So all of our staff who were, you know, scheduling people for their appointments are now taking really heart-wrenching calls and helping people navigate this. Um, also abortionfinder.org is another organization where you can put in your address, the date of your last period and your age to help find your nearest abortion provider and help you navigate, uh, state laws and, um other restrictions that may be in place in terms of, you know, consents, waiting periods, parental notification, all these other really stupid laws that exist, uh, to restrict abortion. Um, and hold out some hope to, uh, hope that we are able to get this law overturned, um, in some way. Uh, in the meantime, please vote for your next state, uh, legislator, um, U.S. Congressperson, Senator, please vote in your interest for uh, reproductive health. Um, And the pandemic brought lots of really terrible things, but one thing it did provide is a very special opportunity to study how safe medication abortion is, even without an ultrasound or even mailing medication and all of these things and so this data is going to help fuel a lot of changes and increase access to medication abortion because it is safe um even without an ultrasound in certain situations and being mailed to somebody's house and all the restrictions that have restricted the um mifepristone uh which is the medication abortion medication uh we're completely unfounded which we always knew but now we have uh really good data to support that we were never able to study before because of restrictions that existed through the FDA uh, prior. I want to thank both of you for having us and letting us talk about something that's very near and dear to our heart.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for um, helping us um, put our voice out there and make sure this gets overturned and not silenced. And hopefully, you know, we can help people in Texas. uh, and then don't forget about the March on October 2nd. <laughs> Anything else, Jen How you wanted to add?
3: Um, I guess I just was hearing a podcast about this Texas bill, and then one of the guest speakers there was saying, the only way this could be going to Supreme Court is if a, a mother gets an abortion after six weeks and gets sued. And you can like bring this um, thing to court to ask for like your civil right has been violated and this sad thing is that it has abortion has become a place where it's the most divisive subject in the united states like it's a place where everybody fights with like teeth and claw and everything so there is this mother and the baby who's using as like a like a decoy or like a symbol while these two parties fight. So this is really sad to me because like it will take time for the patient, emotional toll for the patient. And that's what the law means. Like there is, It's so hard to fight this. And then the only way we can do it right now is, as like Scarlett has been saying, the October 2nd is uh, specifically scheduled at that date because October 4th is, I believe, when the Supreme Court uh, resumes. So hopefully something will change in the between and then there will be something that creates a movement that we can probably create for help to make people understand that this is a really serious issue. And I just got this from Dr. Bukowski's previous interview. I'm not sure if you remember, but um, here's his quote. So it's about reproductive justice. So reproductive justice is giving women equal opportunity to live their lives and have the choice of self-determination. So it's giving the woman who's sitting in front of you, in front of the OB-GYN physicians, the choice to do whatever best for themselves, which is also their patient.
1: I mean, I just don't know how you can not respect human dignity in every human person sitting in front of you, right? And um, I know that pregnancy is a weird place for a lot of people. Right, because of the potential of what that pregnancy could be, but in the moment that it is not, you know, a delivered newborn baby, it is housed inside of a human sitting in front of you, and that person, above any other person, needs to be the one determining what happens to their body. Um, and it's—I get that it's complex. I grew up in a really, you know, hard place. Um, And that complexity is exactly why you cannot legislate and regulate it because it is complex. It is nuanced. And therefore, it should be a personal decision that is not regulated by some fool saying that he's going to get all the rapists off the street with his like magical thinking. Right. The governor of Texas saying just stupid, stupid things Mm. um, with bravado that completely, you know, dehumanizes people who are victims of sexual assault as a way to defend a law that again, just completely negates the the human dignity of people. So I appreciate the quote, reproductive justice is a really important concept. And again, I just hope we always can go back to what our human dignity is and how we would wanna be treated if it was our body, our family, our partner, um, because that's what matters.
3: Dr. Sandoval, would you like to add anything? Thank you for being here. I know you're busy as a fellow.
2: (laughs) No, of course. I mean, I really also want to thank you guys um, for the work that you're doing. Um, It's really important. Like we've been saying to continue these conversations and to have them publicly. And so I want to thank both of you as well um, for, you know, your passion and being brave to
1: talk about all this as well. Don't let Selena be modest. She's amazing. I had the pleasure of getting to train her uh, as a fellow and um, she's going to do really, really amazing work and, go back to the Midwest and get things going. I also encourage you to check out my podcast with some of my fellow OBGYNs, the O plus, the o plus G advocates. I'm actually going to be after this at 5.30, we're recording an episode with um, Dr. Ghazla Moyadi, who's one of the Texas abortion providers uh, who works for Planned Parenthood. But we do a lot of basically, you know, reproductive health advocacy, but how to be, how to be an advocate for reproductive health. So check it out. I think you guys would like it appreciate you guys taking the time to be with us today. I
3: hope you guys have a good one. And then, yeah, I think that's it for us. Thank
2: you, guys.
1: Thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Hearing Her Voice is brought to you by Women's March San Diego at UCSD. The podcast is written and produced by Scarlett Lopez and Jin Ho Jung. Our design director is Melissa Wang. Our creative director is Surin Sunsa, and our technical director is Catherine Cordova. To learn more about Women's March San Diego at UCSD, please visit our website on Linktree. Subscribe to Hearing Her Voice on Anchor App or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.